Hello and welcome back to the Varmints Podcast. We are finally back up and running. It is Varmints 2.0, the great ship Varmints 2.0, where every week we try to educate ourselves and you, the listener, on all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, jump, hop, and swim on this planet one animal at a time. I am Donna and I am not an animal expert, still. (laughs) I'm Kurt. And I'm also not an animal expert. Today we're going to be talking about the pronghorn. Woohoo! This is going to be fun because the pronghorn is actually your favorite animal. Yeah, it's one of my favorite animals. I like it because it's a Colorado native and it has an amazing backstory. Kind of thing. It does. If you wrote it as a novel, no one would believe you. Mm hmm. That is true. And it's going to be super interesting. But anyway, welcome to Varmints 2.0, everybody. Here we go. But first, the news. from 2012, but it's so important that we're going to talk about it today anyway. So, this article is from the U.S. News in 2012. It is called, The Fastest U.S. Land Animal, the Pronghorn Gets Help Crossing a Wyoming Highway. The fastest land animal in the U.S. now has a safe passage across a Wyoming highway, extending a seasonal migration that's been going on for 6,000 years. Pronghorn have started using two overpasses on top of Highway 191 that were completed in the fall of 2012. The Wildlife Conservation Society announced that pronghorn antelope have started using two overpasses atop Highway 191. There are eight foot high fencing channels that get the animals to the crossing points. So Joel Berger, who is a Wildlife Conservation Society scientist, quoted was quoted in this article. And Joel was actually the guy that did the research on musk ox that we used for the solo episode for musk oxen. So he's a really cool guy. But he said, the importance of these overpasses and their use by pronghorn cannot be overstated. They eliminate the danger of collisions and will help preserve a spectacular element of our natural heritage. So basically that group has been tracking pronghorn in the area and provided data for Wyoming to decide where to put the overpasses. The entire project was 10 million bucks and it includes six underpasses used by deer, moose, elk, and other animals. Pronghorn got the overpasses because they don't like going into tunnels. I did not know that. (laughs) The other funny thing about pronghorn and and pronghorn is they have the biological capacity to jump, but they don't like to. (laughs) That's funny. So the eight passes are along a 13-mile stretch of Highway 191, and the state was convinced to do it because they wanted to reduce car wildlife crashes. From 2002 and 2006, 49 deer and three pronghorn were killed in these crashes. And they're probably lucky that no humans were killed. But anyway, there is a there is an update from the Wildlife Conservation Society. And they did a study to look at these overpasses to, and underpasses for the animals to see if they were working. The Wildlife Conservation Society published an update about this. They did a study once the structures were in. They started to see how the animals were doing. And the new study was co-authored by Wildlife Conservation Society and Oregon State. And they said that the efforts to protect the path by installing wildlife crossing structures over the highways have succeeded. They identified an increased success rate of pronghorn crossings over time, and this resulted in a 70% reduction in wildlife vehicle collisions after the installation of the structures, and it gives evidence that the wildlife can adapt to using these structures, which are meant to keep everybody safe and allowing the wildlife to keep migrating. That's amazing. It is totally amazing. The lead author on the study, called Renee Sidler, 
said that the fact that the pronghorn acclimated to these new structures increases the likelihood that their migration will continue and that the investment that the state made into the project was a successful investment and it's good for the you know migration of the animals and also for the safety of the public so that's pretty great i've seen more than one article about how these structures on highways underpasses and overpasses are helping animals to steer clear of human contact with human structures and cars and junk like that and they can sort of go about their little animally ways without having to deal with our junk which is really great but yeah 70 percent reduction in problems is just incredible yeah anytime you get a 70 percent reduction in anything i mean well assuming it's a bad thing 77 percent reduction in car crashes is a good thing for everybody yeah i would say worth every penny for sure just a reminder to go to barments.podbean.com for links to the audio and our show notes for today's episode we are also on twitter and instagram at varmints podcast all one word and varmintspodcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, stories, and suggestions. We have a Pinterest board managed by a wonderful Varminion. Go to pinterest.com slash varmintspodcast and look at all the pretty pictures. If you want Varmints merchandise, visit Redbubble, put Varmints Podcast in search and there and look for our cool merch. If you like the show, why not tell a friend about it and introduce them to the podcast? We're everywhere that podcasts are found, and word of mouth is the very best way to help us grow. Now that let's learn about pronghorn. Hey everyone, it's time to learn about some animals. So what's lived in North America for more than a million years is neither a goat nor an antelope, nor I suppose specifically American except in terms of geography, but is named all three. The pronghorn! <laughs> Their Latin name, Antilocapra, means American goat antelope. I know capra means goat. They are the only surviving members of the Antelope Capridae family, which is a group of even-toed ungulates which evolved on the North American continent and is not related to antelope at all, like not even a little. But that is why we used to call them pronghorn antelope, and now they are just called pronghorn. But Kurt's going to talk a little bit more about how that happened later on in the show. In Mexico, pronghorns are called el antelope americano. Native Americans have a long history of observing, hunting, and living around these animals, but I was not able to find the indigenous names for pronghorn for very many tribes. I found some. I found some from the Cree, who are a nation comprised of at least three linguistic branches that I became aware of. And the Cree word for a pronghorn is Apis Chachikis, which is to mean small caribou. The Yankton Sioux named it small deer, and to the Ogallala Sioux, the pronghorn were the pale deer. And I found the word Dadon Kala at the Wo Lakota Project's pronunciation guide. There are undoubtedly a lot more examples, but unfortunately I could only find a handful, like I said. So if you know of an indigenous name for pronghorn, email us at varmintspodcast at gmail.com. Pronghorn can be found in southern Saskatchewan and Alberta in Canada and in the U.S., in southeastern Oregon, southern Idaho, Montana, and western North Dakota, south to Arizona, and western Texas. They are now rare in northern Mexico and the Baja Peninsula, where they had a much greater population in the past. 
pronghorn have deer-like bodies. Adult males are 1.3 to 1.5 meters, that's 4 feet 3 inches to 4 foot 11 inches long from the nose to the tail, and stand 81 to 104 centimeters or 32 to 41 inches high at the shoulder, and they weigh 40 to 65 kilograms, which is 88 to 143 pounds on average. Females are as tall as males, but weigh a bit less at 34 to 48 kilograms, or 75 to 106 pounds on average. Which is to say, they're about as tall as a kitchen table. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to put my cup of tea on the back of a pronghorn, though. Well, you know, they're for fast service. <laughs> Male pronghorn are called bucks, females are called does, and babies are called fawns. A group of pronghorn is a band or a herd. The feet have two hooves with no dew claws. Their horns are made up of a thin, laterally flattened blade of bone, which grows on the front of the skull. The pronghorn skin covers the bony cores, but develops into a keratinous sheath, which is shed and regrown annually. If you live in a place where there are pronghorn and you're wandering around out in their range in the spring, you can sometimes find the sheds. Oh, that's really cool. I bet our doggies would like to chew on those. They like chewing on antlers and horns of all varieties. Yeah, probably. <laughs> the horns in this species are branched, with each sheath having a forward pointing tine, which is how they got the name pronghorn. Females have smaller horns that are usually not pronged. They're teeny weeny little bumps. You can hardly see them on their heads, but they're there. And both sexes shed them once a year. Pronghorn have tan to reddish brown bodies with white cheeks, belly, rump, chest, and inner legs. Males have broad black masks that run from their eyes down their snout to their nose and black neck patches. Females lack the black markings. Pronghorn live in grasslands, brushlands, and deserts in herds, which change according to the seasons. In the summer, in the summer, does and their fawns gather in bands of less than a dozen. Young males less than two years old form bachelor herds. Breeding males establish their own territories, and in the winter, the herd includes males and females and can include hundreds of individuals of both sexes and all ages. They migrate from summer to winter feeding grounds, which I'll talk about more a little bit later in this episode. So what are you going to talk about today? Uh, well, pronghorn have a number of interesting biological features. Uh, their hair is hollow like a straw and it holds air trapped and helps keep the, animal, the creature warm in freezing winter. Uh, pronghorn can also control the angle at which their hair stands up. They can make, oh, wow. yeah, they can make their hair stand up straight to allow air to circulate for cooling, or they can force it to lie flat, trapping more air to keep warm. When they sense danger, they can flare the white hair on their rump to warn other antelope. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, they do. They flare. They flare their butt hair to tell people danger is on the way, or tell the other animals danger is on the way. It's like, oh, Fred got startled by something. His butt hair is flaring. <laughs> well, the other thing about the, the, these antelope is, antelope, unlike a lot of other herbivores, are curious. They'll walk up and sniff at things, and you know, one of them like sees something in there. Butt hair goes up, and everybody knows to pay attention because we might have to run soon. Oh wow. And we keep calling them antelope, but we're not supposed to. It's yeah. just that this this change in the language happened within our lifetime and within our late lifetime. So it's, yes. it's going to be hard to break the habit. I've, I've been correcting it as I go along. <laughs> I'm like, not antelope yeah. pronghorn, not antelope pronghorn. <laughs> Since pronghorn have good eyesight, in fact, they have about the equivalent of an eight times magnification, they can see this signal from miles away. Eight times magnifications on a... By binocular? Yeah, like binocular magnification. Oh, that's cool. They, they've got really good vision for, for distances. I mean, they don't care about reading, so they, you know, they've adapted to see yeah. things at a, long, at a long distance. Yeah. Their hair also comes loose very easily when the animal is attacked by a predator. And that makes it hard for the predator to get a grip on them. And it also gives the, them a mouthful of hair. <laughs> I've personally handled pronghorn. And when they shed on you, it's very fine and hard to get rid of. <laughs> After handling one pronghorn, uh, a pronghorn just one time, I, I was still finding antelope hair on my coat several years later. <laughs> oh my gosh, really? Yeah. 
I bet the conservationists who deal with them all the time, just their vehicles and equipment are constantly covered with pronghorn hair. Yeah, you can, you can always track them. Oh, look, look, another pronghorn hair. Look, another pronghorn hair. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, uh, they, they look like animals that wouldn't survive the winter, but then when they, apparently their hair is like a super insulator. So. Right. So you did go on pronghorn roundups, which is how you have this first-hand experience with their with their fur. How was? Tell us all about it. All right. Well, here's the story. Imagine it's the year 1998 or so, and it's a February morning, cold. The sun had just barely come up over the horizon, and I was standing in southeastern Colorado with a small force of other volunteers for the we were all volunteering for and working under the auspices of the division of wildlife do not try this at home and <laughs> we were there to capture antelope on the capture pronghorn there we go again antelope pronghorn antelope pronghorn yeah yeah we were there to capture some pronghorn which we were going to ship to nevada in exchange for some desert bighorns and the reason behind this was that they wanted to ensure the genetic diversity of the population so we're just stirring it up a little bit helping populations connect to each other that had been separated by geography. And so we're standing out there in southeastern Colorado. It's flat, it's gray, the sky is gray, the ground is gray. And we were standing at the edge of a square field where the two fence lines come together. And off in the distance, we were waiting for a helicopter because the helicopter, because pronghorn are really fast. Well, I was going to say, why a helicopter? Yeah, because we were hurt. They were hurting the pronghorn. They had to find the pronghorn, and they had to get them to us. Oh. And they used a helicopter to do it. Oh, because the pronghorn are like, ah! <laughs> the helicopter, yeah, they want nothing to do with the helicopter. Whatever the pronghorn butt flare is for <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> yeah, well, it's semaphore at this point. Boop, 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 that's two flips and a flop. Uh, that's... And... Helicopter, run! Run, run. And so the helicopter, we were out there for an hour or so while we were waiting for this helicopter to find a herd because they're all over the place out there. Right. And you can't necessarily see them from the ground. Find one that was close enough to us that it could herd to us. Right. Now, the reason we wanted to do all this in the cold in February as opposed to any other time of the year is because when antelope run, they heat. And we didn't want the animals overheating, especially since what we were going to do, they were going to find a little bit traumatic. Now, every effort was taken not to injure the animals here because the point was to save the species. Right. Or at least, you know, help along with it. And so the antelope, the, the, the helicopter goes zipping back and forth. And eventually we get, this, we get the call that they've got a herd and they're heading in generally the right direction. And they're on the right side of the river and they're on the right side of the fence line. And sure enough, over the hill come a herd of about 40 pronghorn. Wow. And they, and they get down in the V shape between the fences. And at this point we got the signal to go. Right. So we all jumped in pickup trucks, and most of us were riding in the back, and we, we took off, and it was like watching a herd of ferrets because we were <laughs> zigging and zagging all over the place. And we didn't, we weren't going to hurt them with the trucks. Right. So we got up to the fence line, we jumped out of the truck, and went over the barbed wire fence. And it looked like a bunch of, you know, clumsy people storming the beaches in Normandy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because we were all, you know, wearing really big padded clothes. Yes. I I had been assigned to grab a piece of camo netting. It was a, supposed to be a long piece of camo netting that we were going to string between the opening of the V to make a visual barrier that the, the antelope wouldn't want to go through. Okay. And so I ran up to the barrel where this thing was, grabbed one end of it, leaped over the barbed wire fence, you know, like a drunk gorilla, <laughs> and landed funny and started running. And the guy behind me grabbed the other end of it, and we're running across the thing. We're going to stretch this thing across the opening. And I'm, after I'd gone about 20 feet, I realized that the thing was only 10 feet long. Uh-oh. Someone had not calculated this properly because the opening we were trying to cover was 100 feet wide. Oh, no. Oh, no. So we just did it with bodies. We right. spread out in a line, and we all put our arms out, and we played a game of hot and cold with the antelope. <laughs> when their backs were turned, we would walk towards them. When they turned around to look at us, we would stop. <laughs> I just saw that baby Groot doing that in Guardians of the Galaxy yesterday. <laughs> that was pretty much what we were doing. We were walking forward with arms outstretched, and they would look back at us, and we would go, 
okay, everybody sneezed, we'd stop because we didn't want them to think that we were actively chasing them. Oh my gosh. We just wanted them to think the world was shrinking. And they were trapped, and the fences they were trapped between were not that high. They were, they were only like six feet high. And antelope were perfectly capable of jumping that height, they just don't. Why don't they want to jump? Well, in their natural hap, apparently nature has trained them that jumping is not as good as running. Right. Now, I have heard that they will go, and I may have heard it from you at some point, that they will go under fences rather than over them. Yeah, they, they would rather go under a, a fence than over it. Right. Right. Okay, so down at the deep end of the V, there was a, we had a much taller fence with green coverings over it, a blind basically. Right. That looked like kind of a baseball backstop. Sure. We finally got them down there and there's a small hole back there. As, as you mentioned earlier, antelope don't like to go through tunnels. And this looked to them like a tunnel. So it took until we got within 30 yards or so before they finally broke and bolted through the hole. Right. And once they bolted through the hole on the other side, they were in a corral. Uh, we still didn't want to chase him around, so we had set this up beforehand. Somebody, there was a net hanging over the corral, and they set it off with blasting caps, or just bang, 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 like firecrackers, and the net just falls on them. Right. Now, at that point, for all the humans involved, it was a race against time, because the longer it takes us to get in there, get them blindfolded, get them in the truck, the more stressed out they'll be. Right. So we all take off running. And I'm running, I'm wearing this big old heavy coat and these big heavy boots, and I step in a hole. Oh, I no. fall down and my oh, knee hits a cactus. No. Oh no! So I'm lying there going, ow! And a guy comes up to me, he, he passes me and I look up and I see a guy standing there holding this very large, very professional looking camera. And I'm like, did you get that? And he goes, yeah, we're putting that in a blooper reel. <laughs> <laughs> because they had, apparently it made it into the blooper reel. I have never watched this thing, but well, anyway. Well, why not celebrate our embarrassments, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I hopped up, ran through the trap. There's pronghorn under the net, and there's all these big men tackling, you know, putting themselves up. They weren't throwing themselves. They were lying down over the antelope to push them down. We can get them out from under the net, put a blindfold on them, and put hobbles on their feet. Right. And we captured like 40 of them that day. We, and no, no fatalities. We had no fatalities. We had no serious injuries. I mean, a lot of them lost a lot of hair because, as I mentioned, they shed. Right. But we got them in the truck, and they made it. And the, the truck, by the way, I think was named the U-Hauler. <laughs> E-W-E. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we got them in a trailer, and, and they got they got to Nevada just fine. But I learned a lot about antelope during that. I mean, it's one of the few times I got the chance to have my hands on a wild animal in the wild. That is so exciting. That's definitely like a thing you will remember for the rest of your life, especially because you fell down and hurt yourself during it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was about as graceful as a dropped sack at that point. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is crazy. Amazing. Yep. See, well, you kind of are an animal expert, at least about pronghorn. Or at least about that particular day. I am an expert on that day. You're an expert on that day. Nice. (laughs) The pronghorn is the fastest land mammal in the Western Hemisphere, but their top speed is dependent upon the length of time over which it is measured. It can run 35 miles per hour for four miles. That's 56 kilometers an hour for six kilometers. 42 miles an hour for one mile. That's 67 kilometers an hour for 1.6 kilometers. And 55 miles an hour for a half a mile, which is 88.5 kilometers an hour for about 0.8 kilometers. That's pretty darn fast. It is super fast. Oh my gosh. If you're driving along the dirt roads out in eastern Colorado, every now and then, a pronghorn will decide to pass you. I know. Just because it can. <laughs> on your left. Your own business. On your left. <laughs> pronghorn goes zipping by. Meow. You're, like, you're just showing off now, aren't you? I know. They totally are. While it's often cited as the second fastest land animal, second only to the African cheetah, it can also sustain high speeds longer than cheetah. And it's thought that the pronghorn evolved its running ability to escape from a now extinct predator, such as the American cheetah, 
since its speed greatly exceeds that of all existing North American predators. This is a phenomenon that is called the ghost of evolution or an evolutionary anachronism. And we're going to hear all about it from Moss, who is the science dude. Hey there, Varminions! This is Science Dude, and we're back for another lesson, this time on evolutionary anachronism. Evolutionary anachronism is a concept in evolutionary biology named by Connie C. Barlow in her book, The Ghosts of Evolution. It refers to attributes of living species that are best explained as a result of having been favorably selected in the past due to coevolution with another biological species that has since become extinct. And that is your moment of science with Science Dude. Have a groovy, fabulous day. Now, we generally don't talk about extinct animals, but it's not unfair to say that the American cheetah, Asianax americanus, mm-hmm. it's the longhorn, the, the pronghorn is its legacy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, it, if it, that thing is why the, the, the pronghorn are so fast today. And as long as pronghorns retain their speed, that means that extinct cheetah is still having an impact on them. Yes, yes, and that is the point of evolutionary anachronism in general, I think, is that even if the animals are not around today, whatever niche they filled, they did something within the ecology that is likely still affecting a chain of events that come down to us today. And I think that's kind of super special because that really does connect us with all of the living things all the way back to the very beginning because everything affects everything else and we definitely know that happens. I think it's really cool. Yeah, it's one of the coolest things about it. It's like, I was like, when I first learned about them and I first learned that fact, which was some time ago. Yeah, yeah. I just, I was like, oh, I gotta find more of these. (laughs) Yes, there are a good many animals that we've spoken about that are evolutionary anachronisms. We talked about the kakapo parrot, who is a ground parrot, and those parrots are hiding from an eagle that's been extinct for 2,000 years. A really big eagle that has a wingspan of like six feet. (laughs) Or did. And they're hiding from that eagle, but nobody told them the eagle is extinct now. So, (laughs) Imagine this from the parrot's point of view. I'm hiding... And I haven't been killed by an eagle. Therefore, this is working. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And there's a lot of other creatures and plants that are this way as well. But, you know, we don't really have time to go into a big list. But look it up. Look up evolutionary ghost or evolutionary anachronism. It is a really interesting sort of evolutionary rabbit hole to go down. So according to the IUCN... In the early 19th century, there were probably upwards of 35 million pronghorn, and by 1924, they were believed to be near extinction with less than 20,000 animals remaining. You believe that? Yeah. There are 48,000 animals living in the Green Valley River Basin or whatever. That's half the amount that are in Wyoming alone. Yeah. So from 1924 to 1964, the population increased tenfold, and today, numbers are estimated at about a million, with around half occurring in Wyoming, though numbers fluctuate with the severity of droughts and winters. They are generally declining in Mexico, which I think I mentioned before, although they're more stable in the remainder of the range. So local populations are small and isolated, but mostly stable. The original decline in numbers of pronghorn was most likely due to hunting combined with a drastic reduction of available habitat due to loss from 
agricultural, urban, and mining expansion onto historic lands, fencing across routes of seasonal movements, removal of native vegetation by rangeland rehabilitation projects, and heavy livestock grazing. However, effective law enforcement and habitat and wildlife management techniques during the mid-1900s helped pronghorn stage a remarkable recovery, and today, there are no major range-wide threats, although localized declines are still taking place, particularly to the Sonoran pronghorn, mainly as a result of, among other things, livestock grazing, the construction of roads, fences, and other barriers that pose barriers to historical habitat, illegal hunting, insufficient forage and water, and lack of recruitment. And uh, recruitment in biology just means adding new individuals to a group. So good news, 1 million is not even close to 35 million, but still way more than 20,000. So that I would call progress. Yeah, definitely progress. They're better off now than they were 100 years ago, and people are now at least taking the animals into consideration when they make decisions about how to use the land. Yes, which I think is a trend that we need to keep going. I'd like to just take a moment to thank our Patreon peeps. You guys literally keep the lights on for this show, and we appreciate every single one of you. If you haven't joined our Patreon, give us a go. For a buck a month, you can get access to our Discord channel and early releases. Patron-only content is available for three bucks a month or more, with fabulous merchandise prizes as you go on up the tiers. Here at Varmint's Podcast, we're just nerds like you. And we don't usually get to see animals in the wild, so let's talk about where we do get to see them in books, movies, and video games. There's not a lot of current pop culture that centers around the pronghorn. No. Uh, there are, however, a variety of amazing wildlife paintings of pronghorn. I mean, they aren't really an easy subject because yeah. antelope have exactly two speeds. Very still and where'd it go? <laughs> if you like fine art, then Ralph Oberg has some beautiful paintings of them, as does Greg Beecham. Yes. They are some really beautiful paintings, and Ralph Oberg seems to have a style that is quite reminiscent of that which was popular in the late 19th century, which is pretty incredible, because people don't paint like that anymore. So there isn't much in the way of pronghorn pop culture, as you said, but did you know that possibly the best-known cowboy song ever, Home on the Range, yep. is, par is partially about pronghorn? So let's just listen to Tex Ritter sing a little bit with his old-timey instruments and the staticky 78 RPM record <laughs> recording. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam where the deer and the Discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day Home, home on the range Where the deer and the antelope play Where well, seldom is heard a discouragement so, yeah, it's where the deer and the antelope play. The antelope they're talking about are the pronghorn. 
Yeah, I'm going to have to stop getting those names mixed up. I know better. Yeah, it's hard to break the habit, though. Yeah. So when, on June on June 30th, 1947, Home on the Range became the Kansas State Song. And in 2010, members of the Western Writers of America chose it as one of the top 100 Western songs of all time. The author is a guy called Brewster M. Higley from Smith County, Kansas, and he wrote the lyrics to the poem, My Western Home, with at least one source indicating that he wrote it at as early as 1871. So this guy moved from Indiana and acquired land in Smith County, Kansas under the Homestead Act and lived in a small cabin near West Beaver Creek. He was inspired by his surroundings and he wrote My Western Home first, which was published in the Smith County Pioneer newspaper and republished in 1874 in the Kerwin Chief. Higley's Cabin Home is listed on the National Register of Historic Places as the Home on the Range Cabin. Daniel E. Kelly, who was a friend of Higley and a member of the Harlan Brothers Orchestra, developed a melody for the song on his guitar. Higley's original lyrics are similar to those of the modern version of the song, but not identical. For instance, the first version didn't include On the Range. Ranchers, cowboys, and other Western settlers adopted the song as a rural anthem, and it spread throughout the United States in various forms. In 1925, Texas composer David W. Guion arranged it as sheet music that was published by G. Shermer, and the song has since gone by a number of names, the most common being Home on the Range and Western Home. Bing Crosby recorded Home on the Range with Lenny Hayton and his orchestra for Brunswick Records. At the time, the origins of the song were obscure and widely debated, though it had been published in 1910 in folklorist John Lomax's Cowboy Songs and Other Frontier Ballads. Lomax reported he'd learned the song from a black saloon keeper in Texas who recalled learning it on the Chisholm Trail, and its popularity led Mary and William Goodwin filing a suit for copyright infringement in 1934 for fifty or for $500,000, which is a lot in 1934. Yeah, that's millions of dollars in today's money. Yeah. And in 1935, the couple published an Arizona home, which is similar to Home on the Range, and the lawsuit initiated a search for the song's background. But as it turned out, controversy and even outright plagiarism has followed the song's lyrics ever since their publication. In 1876, the Kerwin Chief published an article on the front page called Plagiarism, accusing the Stockton News of publishing a nearly identical poem which was credited to Mrs. Emma Race of Raceburg, Kansas. The Kerwin Chief, which had published the poem in 1874, repented the poem below the article. And when the investigator went in and looked at the history of Home on the Range on behalf of the Music Publishers Protection Association, in response to the Goodwin's 1934 lawsuit, he found another similar song called Colorado Home. But within a few months, he determined that Higley had written the poem behind Home on the Range and set to music by Kelly. And it seemed likely that the Cowboys on the Chisholm Trail played a role in marking the song known throughout several states. I didn't see in the article here whether the Goodwins won their money or not, but I assume that they lost because it wasn't their work. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they almost certainly did not win that. That would be an interesting thing to look up later. Yeah. But that really speaks to the difficulty of finding original sources, mm -hmm. especially in the, the early days of, you know, especially obviously in the early days of what we would think of as sort of the modern information age where people were writing things down, papers were being published, but not everything was kept. Yeah. And a lot of stuff that they absorbed came out of oral culture. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But yeah, it's gotten, it's an old enough piece now that everybody thinks they know it. They don't. <laughs> yeah, but, almost nobody ever gets past the first verse. Yeah, that's right. But now we can change the first verse because it needs to be, if you're in the singing in the bathtub or the shower, remember it's home, home on the range where the deer and the pronghorn play from now on. Woohoo! From now on, yes. <laughs> pronghorn all the way. Pronghorn all the way!
is this animal food? Well, if you're asking me, the answer is almost always yes. But what we want to know is what eats it besides me? And where is it in the food chain? Well, we're about to find out. eats pronghorns? I don't know. What, what does he do? Well, wolves, cougars, bears, and even eagles prey upon pronghorn from time to time. Coyotes kill more individual pronghorn than any other, except any, well, apparently especially in Yellowstone National Park. Mm -hmm. Hunters also hunt them, when a hunt, and hunters to this day call them goats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. Okay. But the bears and cougars and things like that generally get the ones that are already on their way out. Sure. They're sick. And coyotes are great ambush predators, and so they'll be able to take a pronghorn. One, an interesting thing when humans hunt pronghorn, most hunters will not shoot a pronghorn after it started to run. Yeah, I can imagine that would be pretty difficult. It's not that it's difficult, it's that the meat's no good. Oh, because of the adrenaline rush, right? Yeah. 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 It makes their meat, and it's like yeah, if you get them lying, the, the op optimal time to shoot a pronghorn is when it's lying on the ground. Oh wow! And they can't—they're yeah. pretty good at camouflaging themselves a lot of the time too. So that seems pretty difficult. Yeah, you, you can be out there and you can be standing within ten feet of one of these things and not see it. That's crazy. <laughs> I remember yeah. seeing an article somewhere when I was doing some research that said—I don't remember where it was—but some wildlife, Fish and Wildlife Service for whatever state it was, had to take special steps to save their baby pronghorn from a coyote population because the coyotes were doing better than the pronghorn wherever wherever this was. And Yeah, that's because the grass had been cut down, wasn't it? Something like that, yeah. Something had happened to alter the environment where the babies were trying to hide and they couldn't because the environment had been so altered that they just couldn't hide from the coyotes and the coyotes were just devastating them so the wildlife service had to come in and do some things put up some fencing or something take some anti-coyote measures for a little while until the population bounced back but yeah that's pretty interesting yeah. coyotes eat a lot of these guys i guess so yeah mostly the little ones eagles will also take the fawns Sure. Because they're small enough. Yeah, I can see that. But it used to be that the grass on the great, especially out here in Colorado, the grass used to be much taller. Yep. Yep, that's true. You can find accounts of settlers heading out west describing the grass as brushing against the bellies of their horses. Yep. Yep. It used to be super, super tall. All right, well, now we're going to hear from Bruce from Oz about animal facts. G'day. Here in Australia, we have over 200,000 different species of animals. Now it's time for the Animal Fact of the Week. I'm going to talk about the Great Migration. The Great Migration Route of Pronghorns is one of the biggest migrations in America, with groups of pronghorn that are going around this thing in groups of like three to four hundred pronghorn as they migrate. And there's a ton of them, but it's three to four hundred prong pronghorn each. Each fall and spring they migrate 150 miles from their summer birthing grounds in the Grand Teton National Park to their winter feeding grounds near Pinedale, Wyoming. And this migration is called the Path of the Pronghorn. And it's one of the last long distance animal migrations in the world and has been happening for 6,000 years. 6,000 years is a long, is a hard habit to break. <laughs> yeah. There are like 48,000 pronghorn that live in the upper Green River Basin and their migration is now a federally protected journey. 
so you can't pester Pronghorn on the way, and things are done to make the journey less interfered with by humans, like the overpasses and stuff that we were talking about earlier. There is a really cool documentary about this migration that's about nine minutes long, and you can go look at it on the YouTubes. Just look up the Path of the Pronghorn documentary short, and you will find it. That's pretty amazing. I wonder yeah. what else do they do? I looked up Federal Wildlife Corridor, and mm -hmm. there's different things that they do in different states. So it doesn't seem like... It seems like there's a federal guideline, but not, but uh, states do different things in addition to whatever the federal guideline is. Yeah, the feds probably set a minimum standard, and then people can go above and beyond that if they need to. Right. But it basically means humans and vehicles cannot mess with the migration. It's protected. Yeah, there, there are a variety of laws. and we, we even have international treaties about some things, but not again. I mean, the pronghorn don't leave the United States, so we don't really don't need one there. At least these pronghorn don't. There are pronghorns in Mexico and Canada. Yeah, but they're um, they're not the migration the, ones. So. Yeah, they're not the ones who are doing this this particular binodal migration. Yeah. As a rule, the feds will establish a floor, and then the, the, the states can go farther than that. Right. And how they accomplish it is usually left up to the states unless they're failing to live up to it. Right. right. Well, the population's increasing, so it seems like most states are probably doing a pretty good job. Ah, the pronghorn. Yes. And we've been calling it antelope all this time. Yes. And there's a reason for that. As we talked about a little bit earlier, the designation pronghorn as opposed to pronghorn antelope is relatively recent. Mm -hmm. But the discussion of the name of this thing goes back for a very long time. Of course, European settlers didn't reach this area until the 1500s. And so, obviously, European settlers didn't have a name for the thing. Uh, and the first recorded instance that we know of, of someone making a record of something that we think was a pronghorn, was a conquistador named Pedro de Castaneda, Castaneda um, who chronicled Coronado's search for Cibola, the seven mythical cities of gold, in the early 1540s. Castaneda claimed to have been told by other Spaniards who had traveled to the region that flocks of goats had been seen, which ran so fast they disappeared very quickly. Ah, that's probably a pronghorn. Yeah, and the thing about it was they didn't have anything to compare it to. So they called it the closest thing they could think of. It had horns, and so they thought, okay, it's a goat. It didn't have antlers. Um, it didn't have, uh, some of people thought it was a type of sheep. Some people thought it was a type of goat. Uh, some people who had a concept of antelope thought it might be kind of antelope. In 1771, while Louisiana was still a French colony, Jean-Bernard Bosseau made an official sightseeing trip up the Mississippi River as far as Fort Chahoka, opposite St. Louis. He reported being told that wild goats and kids, which were extremely agile and alert, could be seen near the source of the Missouri River, wherever that was. So people were, again, calling them goats because that's what they thought they were. Like, they, couldn't, they didn't have another word for it. Right. The British who came over also called them goats. We've already talked about some of the Indian names for them, but it wasn't until modern biology came along and proved that they are not anything like goats That's or true. antelope yep. that they got their name changed to pronghorn <laughs> because the biological community was just like, okay, we got to stop calling it a goat. We got to stop calling it a antelope because it's neither one. Right. In fact, one of the things they have discovered is that the most closely related animals on Earth to pronghorn are giraffes and okapi, these African animals. They're basically, they're the, their nearest common ancestor was over five million years ago. So these guys are way out on their own evolutionary branch. I mean, they split off from the common ancestor with giraffes five plus, somewhere between five and 25 million years ago. Right. And they're the only remaining example of their family which is a very long way to go. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's, like, that's a long, that's a lot of extinct creatures, a big long line of extinct creatures that we don't... Yeah, they're one of the... We don't usually, again, we don't usually talk about extinct animals on this podcast, but it seems to be a massive part of this animal is all the things that did not make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like you, 
it's just like a well many of our valleys in the United States are are exist because they were scraped out by glaciers which are no longer here right exactly and it's the same with the the, the pronghorn the pronghorn is way out on its own on an, on an evolutionary limb now that doesn't necessarily mean they're in trouble or anything uh, given enough time and geogra geologic geographic separation they could in fact form other species or in fact subspecies of pronghorn already so you know it's like they could, they could branch out and become more diverse, but that's not going to happen on time scales which humans are find easy to appreciate. Yeah, but it is amazing, and so is the pronghorn. This show was produced by me, Donna Hume, on land belonging historically to the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho Native American tribes, with intro music by Kevin McLeod and bed music today by Chris Haugen. Our logo was created by Imran Javed. Our vocal talent today was Chad from the Podfix Network, Dave from the Airwolf Years, Toph from This Week Today, Derek Schmay as the Science Dude, and Kevin Framp as Bruce from Oz. No Rugrat Corner today, folks, but if you have a Rugrat eight years of age or younger who wants to be on the podcast, send us a message on Facebook or email us at marmonspodcast at gmail.com for details. We make it super easy for your Rugrat to hear their voice on the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time... Be nice to animals. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at podfix on Twitter, official underscore podfix on Instagram, at podfixnetwork on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.